Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society, and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi, I'm Dimitar, and you're listening to Brussels Bytes. I'm really happy that we're back with the recordings of our podcast as we had to stop our sessions for several months due to the pandemic. Our society has decided to press pause to social and economic life for a while, but life goes on, and life is not something you can command with a remote control. We talk about the new normal, but that doesn't mean that our old societal problems got solved. We need to adjust to the new situation, but we also need to put extra effort on key issues which demanded our urgent attention even before the pandemic. And many of them were in the field of technological policy, a very deep ocean which our podcast tries to explore. And I'm really happy that our today's exploration features a great navigator to help us along the journey. Brussels Bytes welcomes Eliška Pilkova as today's podcast guest. Hello, thank you for having me. Eliska works as Access Now's Europe Policy Analyst based in Brussels. She has been working also on her doctoral dissertation focused on freedom of expression on the internet and online content regulation. Eliska has a very diverse background in human rights in the last decade, and she's also a research fellow at the Privacy and Sustainable Computing Lab in Vienna. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Um, so let's start off, and maybe you can tell our listeners a bit more about Access Now and your work in Brussels. Absolutely. Um, so Access Now is a global civil rights organization. Our main mandate or mission is to defend and extend the digital rights of users at risk around the world. Um, among Access Now as an organization has quite a few activities. First of all, I would probably emphasize the existence of Digital Security Helpline, which probably uh, many listeners might be actually familiar with. It's a security helpline that is available to human rights activists, uh, journalists, human rights defenders, and other users at risk 24-7, where our tech team is actually offering and helping the assistance on the ground when it's needed. We are also having policy teams that are spread around the globe. Uh, these policy teams are working and trying to influence the legislation and policy making in the field of digital rights and to put user and users' fundamental rights in the center of these regulations and in the debate. Um, besides the team in Brussels that I am a part of, we are also operating in um, in uh, Latin America, we have a big policy team in Washington, D.C. We also work in uh, Asian Pacific region and in Africa. Um, and it's quite interesting from a position of global organization to actually see how legislators can impact each other and how what we often do in Europe and the standards that regulators and legislators put forward here have direct consequences for other regions around the world. Uh, we have a wonderful advocacy team and we also offer the small grants to our partners and civil society organizations operating on, at the grassroots level. And of course, our conference, RightsCon, so far the biggest conference in the space of digital rights is hopefully quite well known by now. This year, it was the first time RightsCon went online and the number of participants reached a beautiful number of between seven to eighty. 
sorry, seven to eight thousand. Uh, so we were very Excellent. happy. Yeah, thank you very much. We were very happy to actually bring RightsCon to everyone who was interested in joining us. And maybe the final point that I could make about Access Now is our participation on strategic litigation. Mm. Uh, we have a legal team which often strategically engage um, in different courts and legal processes. We often submit amicus briefs to European Court of Human Rights uh, in those most relevant cases that we know will have precedential impact on the protection of digital rights. And maybe really the final point, um, one of our really starlet campaigns is Keep It On campaign, which specifically tackles the issue of internet shutdowns around the world, um, which is, of course, uh, from fundamental rights uh, perspective, uh, extremely uh, dangerous practice. Uh, we often see these shutdowns taking place in times of national elections, uh, when the states want to crack down on the protesters. And it's not something which is like, due to technical reasons, it's because of political reasons, right? Yes, absolutely. It's politically motivated, and it's mainly not allowing to actually let information flow from outside and inside the country. And unfortunately, the situation on Belarus is the latest case mm -hmm. that we have been working on. Um, and uh, uh, it's a very important work, and we are very happy to actually run this coalition. Uh, and we also publish the reports every year on uh, the situation of internet shutdowns that are available on our website, accessnow.org. So I invite all listeners to actually visit our website and have a look at our work. Yeah, back in the days, we had media blackouts, we had electricity blackouts. Now we have internet shutdowns because of political reasons. What times to be alive now? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. A very extraordinary times indeed. <laughs> Um, I really see you guys have been keeping yourselves quite busy lately. Um, you have a fantastic organization going, so I'm happy that you're featuring in this podcast. Thank you. Um, Elishka, you have a comprehensive, back comprehensive background in human rights, and also Access Now is very active and vocal on how to protect human rights online, and especially in terms of um, online content governance. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit more on content governance. Content governance is quite a complex topic, so I try to be um, as comprehensive as possible because it's easy to actually touch up on so many issues that content governance actually uh, really addresses. So, Give us a few points. Uh, so first of all, um, content governance is the topic that touches upon, on one hand, self-regulation, so what platforms actually do with the user-generated content that me, you, or anyone who uses these platforms post and share. Um, this self-regulation is often exercised by using the terms of service. So this is the mm -hmm. first issue. Um, we don't really have still clear information from platforms how exactly they moderate the content, what are the standards that they deploy, and how these terms of service are really being applied by platforms. We know that for content moderation, due to the huge quantity and often low quality of the shared content, they have to use automated measures. But especially in content governance, automated measures can have far-reaching negative implications on fundamental rights. When we speak about content governance, we speak about different categories of content, such as online hate speech, terrorist content, and so on. There are categories of content that are deeply contextually dependent. And context, whether this is historical context, political context, and by that I mean not every expression will be immediately considered as, let's say, non-acceptable if we stay at the realm of self-regulation in France uh, and comparing to Slovakia, as an example. Because the historical development and political background of the country and the way how the legislative system or the understanding of freedom of expression was shaped is different. Mm -hmm. um, 
so first of all, we definitely need more transparency. We've done some progress there, but we still need more. And then there is the way how state approach content governance and how they tackle illegal content online. So a content that directly violate the legislation at the national level uh, or also international human rights standard that are legally binding uh, for member states who ratify those international treaties. Um, so with the illegal content, um, uh, we can actually see different efforts at the national level. And out of our experience as a global organization, we see new laws popping up everywhere all the time. Uh, whether at the level of member states, the famous Nets DG, the mm -hmm. first anti-hate speech law online in Germany, as it used to be nicknamed by media, uh, is one example of it. And Nets DG actually started this big wave around the globe um, of new laws that seek to tackle illegal forms of hate uh, uh, user-generated content. This was the Nets Gazette. This was the Correct. legislation, just to clarify, this was the legislation which basically said that illegal or terrorist content should be removed in 24 hours or so, right? Exactly, yeah. and it also included the one-hour time frame. Another example, which is maybe a little bit more fresh example, is Avia Law, which was actually struck down by the Constitutional Council in France. Mm -hmm. Avia Law also sought to tackle online hate speech and terrorist content. Uh, it was quite like it covered a broad categories of user-generated content. It also contained 24-hour time frame for the removal and also one-hour time frame, which are extremely, and in our opinion, unduly short time frames yeah. that will ultimately lead to over-removal of user-generated content, including the legitimate speech. Yes. Um, and we have this fresh decision from the Constitutional Council um, in France saying that these measures are actually unconstitutional because they do not provide for sufficient safeguards for fundamental rights of online users. Who defines what's hate speech? Who defines what's mm. illegal, right? These are the philosophical questions of our time. Yes, they are. Um, so it's important to emphasize that there is no universally adopted mm. definition of hate speech uh, at the international level, uh, precisely due to that deep contextual dependency. There is a couple of working definitions. One of them is the one proposed by the Committee of Ministers of Council of Europe, for instance. Um, and then there are other initiatives developed by civil societies or by United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and Opinion. Uh, one of them is, for instance, Rabbit Plan of Action that uh, provides the assistant and so-called six-part threshold test that helps us to distinguish between hate speech mm. that still falls into protective scope of freedom of expression, because this is important to emphasize. And that's the tricky part about hate speech. And not every form of hate speech is illegal. And it doesn't mean that even if hateful expression still falls into protective scope of freedom of expression, it can still impose potential harm on minorities, on underrepresented groups, on groups that are uh, often subjected to discrimination by majoritarian societies. That's what makes hate speech as a content category very tricky. Um, and that's why it is so difficult to define it. I want to maybe uh, bring the conversation to our lovely Brussels bubble. Um, we have the upcoming Digital Services Act mm. because you mentioned keywords like illegal content, uh, online harms. The DCA, which is planned to come out in later this year, um, aims to address exactly these issues. What's happening on the ground? What's happening when you talk with the European Commission? And where does access now stand on this issue? 
Actually, yes, precisely. Digital Services Act uh, is a very important topic when we discuss how to regulate and how to tackle illegal content or potentially harmful content, which is this new tricky category that we oppose a lot. Uh, so I can give you also more national examples. For instance, UK white paper on online mm -hmm. harm that was published last summer, I believe, uh, which online harm as such is a very vague category. And we know out of experience when these vague terminology finds its way to the legislative frameworks, it almost always will lead to the uh, human rights abuse. Um, Digital Services Act uh, is a very important piece of legislative package because it won't consist only of one law. We can probably expect a series of new legislative efforts in the field of content governance and in the field of the systemic regulation of online platforms, especially those platforms that gain the role of gatekeepers of uh, societies. Uh, this is the term that is being used by European Commission as well. Um, and we also use the term mainly in the context of gatekeepers of fundamental rights. And uh, DSA is supposed to uh, specifically tackle these extremely dominant positions these actors gained over the years. Um, not only economic dominance, but also their incredible impact on shaping public discourse, democratic discourse, and especially their control over protection of fundamental rights of online users. Um, DSA, as a legislative package, will then contain with the high probability of specific legal reform of current e-commerce directive, which is a directive that provides main standards for intermediary reliability um, of hosting service providers or intermediaries. Um, then the part of DSA will be so-called new competition tool, mm -hmm. which mainly will focus on how to tackle economic dominance of these platforms and how to maybe uh, implement certain anti-mergers. Uh, so if I explain it in a very plain language, uh, how to prevent Facebook from uh, buying companies such as Instagram and WhatsApp that will only lead to a stronger economic position and kill a possibility to compete for smaller platforms and smaller actors that are often quite powerless in contrast to these big giants. And finally, it will also tackle the issue of business models of these companies. Mm -hmm. And business model is the key in this debate, whether we speak about the data protection, privacy, or content governance. So data harvesting business models that stand and fall on attention economy, where your time as a user and your data is being treated as a commodity. Um, and we are hoping that that's what DSA will ultimately do, that it will provide these human rights building safeguards where users' empowerment, users' protections, and users' fundamental rights are in the core of legislative efforts. So to put it in a nutshell, the way I see the Digital Services Act is that it aims basically to bring back control to the government, to Brussels, um, because right now we're seeing that we've delegated these responsibilities to the private companies. And That's we do not have a say, and democratic accountability is basically lost. Are you optimistic about the Digital Service Act? Um, I am hopeful and I remain cautious. Okay. <laughs>
I think that's the same way how to put it. Um, cautious optimist. Yeah. yeah, cautious optimist. That's correct. Uh, I have to say that we, as an organization, we do have a DSA position. Mm. Um, we will be launching our position papers uh, very soon. They will be available on our website as well. Um, we did develop a quite smooth uh, cooperation with the European Commission. We speak to legislators. We speak to policymakers. We put together... The Are they listening? Um, to some extent, they definitely do. But of course, until we see the draft of the law in front of us, mm. we cannot really confirm or, or say, yes, all our concerns were addressed. So that's why we also remain cautious. We know that intentions are good. Um, it seems that the European re regulator is truly listening to our concerns. But uh, until 2nd of December arrives, which is exactly that time frame that the Commission gave us for now, that's the day when we should actually see the first outcome. Uh, we remain, yeah, we remain careful. We remain cautious. Okay, great. Um, let's open up the conversation a bit more and talk about the elephant in the room, which is COVID-19. <laughs> um, this, I mean, the pandemic has impacted almost all domains of our private, our public lives. But how do you see the impact of the pandemic on privacy? I mean, contact tracing apps, let's mm. say they immediately pop to mind as an example. Uh, it was a big fuss over the spring. But there's been also many, many reports of private companies, of employers using specific tools to surveil their mm. employees, to encroach on their freedoms so they can manage and control them. All of these are more or less violations of privacy and maybe fundamental rights. So are you more pessimistic after the last couple of months and the practices we've seen? Tell us about your experience. Well, um, we... Uh, I don't want to say that we are pessimistic, but we saw a lot of, uh, let's say, bad behavior, especially in developing contact tracing apps and kind of trying to convince the world that contract tracing apps can actually uh, resolve the pandemic or stop COVID-19 from spreading. Um, we, however, as an organization, completely understand uh, that these that there has to be some acceptable level of use of data, which can then help us to actually tackle this pandemic effectively. It will provide us with some evidence and research-based approach how to actually resolve these issues and also to measure the effectiveness of, in, of individual measures adopted by states. So the question is really uh, not whether we can or cannot use the data of users or of individuals, but uh, if it is truly necessary to a certain extent and how we actually use those mm. data. That's the ultimate question here. So I, first of all, would like to emphasize that we don't need to be afraid of technology, uh, but we should not consider technology as an ultimate savior or solution. Um, and uh, we need to consider or take into consideration all those failures and the mistake that Europe and member states actually did during uh, developing these contact tracing apps and during emergency crisis that we were actually going through. Tell us more about the failures. I'm really curious. So I think that, uh, of course, from the data protection viewpoint and standpoint, the way how the 
data were actually used or what was the purpose limitation for the use of data by some of these contract tracing apps that there were many, many risks that uh, had to be acknowledged uh, much better than they were at the end. We do understand that this was the emergency situation, but we also uh, experienced this kind of wave of member states telling us that we need those contract tracing apps, otherwise we cannot actually mm -hmm. tackle the spread of the pandemic uh, in any effective way. Now, we already know uh, that those states that actually develop uh, these applications, uh, we know that actually the number of downloads by users was not particularly high. Uh, and we also know that in order for these contact tracing apps to be truly effective, we actually need at least 15% uh, or one third of the population to really use them. And hardly any countries, even those countries that actually uh, were quite successful in terms of number of downloads, such as Finland or Iceland, where it was around 30 to 40%, um, even there it was very difficult Uh, like this number is still very low, mm -hmm. especially in comparing to the overall amount of population, right? Um, so um, it's it's not quite like, and of course, the, the use of these applications cannot really replace the actual testing on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and also there were several models proposed for uh, applications. Some of them were more human rights friendly. Of course, we supported the decentralized model, which means that your data as a user are not being stored in one centralized database that is usually operated by the state, uh, where, of course, it's being much more vulnerable to the abuse of these data uh, than in contrast to those decentralized application models that were also developed and supported by academia, where those data basically don't leave your device. Uh, the level of anonymization is very extremely important, of course. Mm, and I could actually give few practical examples where uh, there were applications developed, especially for monitoring the mandatory quarantine, where we saw the list of personal data uh, that was supposed to be used by that application disproportional for the purpose. Um, so there were certain data which truly was not necessary for us to did, know Where about did you. this happen? Which countries? Can you give examples? Um, I can personally point out to actually my own country, which is Slovakia, uh, that actually developed the application uh, for monitoring these uh, mandatory quarantines. Mm -hmm. So you could actually spend the time of the mandatory quarantine at your home, but you would be obliged to use these monitoring application. Um, that would then actually enable state to control whether you stick to the rules of mandatory quarantine. Uh, when we reviewed those uh, like set of data that this application, sorry, application was supposed to use, uh, we were quite shocked because, in our opinion, this didn't have a clear purpose limitation, and we did not quite understand why all of this would be necessary for the state to actually get or for the application to get in order to really keep an eye on people whether they follow the rules of mandatory quarantine or not. Uh, and also, it was very uh, tricky for us to understand how these uh, data then will be secured by state and uh, protected uh, from a possible abuse that it did turn out at the end that this, that, that this abuse was quite likely and possible uh, due to the missing safeguards. Um, so, and I mean, this is just one example. Um, and uh, I could probably give you more, but I think this nicely illustrates the issue uh, with the privacy. And I also feel like 
no uh, no one should be put in a position where they have to choose whether you, they want to like uh, have their privacy to be protected and at the same time their health to be secured by the state. Like you have a right to both. They're, is, they're not mutually exclusive. They're right? absolutely not mutually exclusive. And I think that I often had the feeling from the overall debate, and this is also my personal opinion, uh, that somehow privacy had to be sacrificed uh, in order to fight COVID-19 effectively. Absolutely not. You can still have your privacy protected and secured uh, while your data can actually help to tackle mm -hmm, the crisis. Mm -hmm. But given that the sufficient safeguards, as stipulated by GDPR, have to be in place. But everybody was in a hurry and uh, everybody was sloppy. And uh, the result was not optimal. Okay, we've been speaking about human rights, privacy, illicit behavior by tech companies. Let's very briefly touch upon one of my pet topics, ones which I'm generally fascinated and also a bit scared of, the question of facial recognition. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this has been an issue before the pandemic. It's continuing to be an issue. So many private companies, startups, seem to be engaged in facial recognition software or services related with it and rules appear to be missing and we've been talking about this for a while but it seems we're stuck what's happening so i i do agree that uh, maybe there are some rules missing or it somehow feels that way from the general debate but let's not underestimate that we already have a very efficient framework in place and that's uh, gdpr uh, which is a legislative framework uh, it's a flagship law developed mm -hmm. by Europe that had far-reaching impact on other uh, jurisdictions around the world, and it still does. We can discuss a lot what's, whether there is an issue with the enforcement of this framework, but there is law in place. Now, I, when we discuss facial recognition technologies, I really like the statement from the current European Data Protection Su Supervisor who actually imposed the question whether there is any evidence yet that we need such a technology at first place. And uh, then are there really no less intrusive means to achieve the same goal? Um, and it shouldn't be efficiency or convenience that actually drives this conversation. But again, it should be the protection of fundamental rights of users. Uh, that should be the primary objective in the debate on facial recognition technologies as well as on artificial intelligence. Uh, we are now seeing these hype of using AI-powered facial recognition systems uh, that are increasingly deployed in sensitive environments around the world, often without your knowledge or without your explicit consent. We also need to remember that facial recognition technology directly uses your biometric data. And under GDPR, the use of biometric data, such as the image of your face, for identification purposes is generally prohibited unless you have given explicit consent. Uh, so when these, uh, another kind of trend that we see with the facial recognition technology, which is very worrisome to us, is that when these technologies are put in place, they are often put in place on the basis of, of some pseudo-scientific claims, such as we can somehow understand your psychological health and at what emotional state you currently are. Uh, this sounds dystopian. Uh, and it is absolutely scientifically uh, unproved. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially, it's an approach that ultimately hurts human rights and destroys public trust. One of the goals that the European Commission has is to develop these trustworthy AI, mm. but without proper safeguards that will protect fundamental rights of users, you cannot actually arrive to that goal and you miss the mark. 
So fundamental rights have to be the starting point in this conversation. Absolutely. Definitely. Should should we ban facial recognition or high-risk AI in certain cases? It's it's a big issue. It's a divisive issue. What do you think? So uh, we are actually the members of a civil society coalition that currently consists of 44 civil society organizations that actually call on EU bodies, European Commission, European Parliament, and all EU member states included, to ensure that these technologies are comprehensively and uh, bent in both law and practice, especially if these are the technologies where we know that they impose direct risk to fundamental rights of online users and where we know that uh, there is no justification for deploying them. Um, so uh, we also understand that the current regulatory and enforcement framework Uh, has not been actually particularly su successful in preventing member states from deploying these, uh, for instance, biometric technology or the technology for mass surveillance that uses your biometrics. And because of all these reasons, we actually urge the European Commission to act now and impose the ban on these type of technologies. Uh, before it's too late. Before, before it's it, too late, it's mass absolutely. Practice, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and this is very much also connected to the fact that uh, very often uh, we actually hear um, that European Union should be capable of competing with the US and China in these, uh, some sort of AI race. But uh, this is not a zero-sum game, mm -hmm. which means mm -hmm. that in order for European Union to remain competitive, we don't need to deploy every single AI application that is out there, including those that have serious consequences for human rights. AI as such, or facial recognition technology as such, can also really reinforce discrimination of underrepresented groups. Um, and we need to actually be able to first tackle these negative impacts uh, on especially underrepresented groups. The the one thing you just mentioned uh, reminds me of the this overall argument. Oh, if we put in place some new rules, we're going to be less competitive. That we're going to hamper innovation. How do we design legislation which is technologically neutral um, and is an answer that this whole um, innovation versus regulation thing? It's like a false dichotomy. So, what do you think about that? Uh, well, I definitely agree with the part on false dichotomy. Mm. Uh, and I think that uh, our principle in this debate is uh, quite straightforward. First of all, mm -hmm. not all AI uptake or adoption of AI solutions is compatible with fundamental rights. Secondly, AI-based systems are not always the best solution for a given problem. And so we need to build check and balances to ensure that we do not ignore existing systems of oppression and the division between different parts of society, as I already stated. And this was also the argument that we really were missing in the uh, European Commission white paper on artificial intelligence. And we really emphasized this aspect in our submission to the consultation. Um, how we actually feel that these safeguards and proper definition of red lines need to be put in place at first. And that's that has to be the starting point of this debate. Uh, regarding the dichotomy that you mentioned, uh, I think it's this mantra that we hear all the time about uh, ability to innovate and about the competitiveness of European Union and all these, like the need to keep up with China and the US. Uh, but 
as I already stated, it is perfectly possible for the European Union to actually remain its role in this market and remain competitive uh, and even to endorse certain branches and applications of, of AI why at the same time being able to recognize those that threaten human rights and fundamental rights and not to endorse them and not to accept them and to even put the ban on these type of technologies. Um, especially in the context of facial recognition, we know that these technologies impose direct threat to our rights um, and therefore the very solid precaution must be put before innovation and competitiveness. Uh, that's a clear cut for us. Uh, so we need red lines uh, rather than just risk mitigation because we need to remember when you do risk mitigation, that means that damage is already done. Mm. That's, that's quite clear. I, as a final question, maybe because we're running out of time, uh, we've been talking a lot about policymakers, about regulation, but let's talk about individuals, let's talk about mm -hmm. citizens, mm, especially when it comes to digital hygiene. Um, because, I mean, we can expect a lot from governments and from their response, but it's up to us, after all, mm -hmm. to keep track of these issues and take certain measures in our own hands. What's your experience when it comes to people's personal digital hygiene? Um, and maybe a couple of words of Access Now's work on awareness raising mm. or civil society engagement and communication. Yeah. So I think that uh, when it comes to protection of citizens and the digital hygiene, I think it's actually always this intersection of all. So regulators doing their job properly and creating these inbuilt safeguards, but also safeguards that will lead to more users' empowerment and control, whether over information that they actually share and empower, or whether they're over their data and how their data are being used. Even the basic awareness of you as a user that you are being subjected to automated decision-making processes that often uh, are happening in the background while you are browsing uh, Facebook, uh, all of this is currently very much missing. And there are no proper legal uh, standards that could actually force platforms to really uh, establish these criteria for meaningful transparency and user-centric transparency. And then, of course, there is the level where users can sort of become more aware and, and do that themselves. Access now developed these rules for, uh, or rules sort of guidance for a better protection and digital safety online. And these are the basic rules that starts with read the terms of service. Of course, that's not very easy. Very mm. often, uh, you need to unbundle so many things, and they are written in a complicated way. Uh, they are, of course, platforms are using nudges, so they kind of make you through different interface design solutions to agree much faster than you would normally. Um, and uh, but but if possible do try to read terms of service. We do know, based on the data that we have, that the time users usually spend on, on terms of service is, is incredibly low. So we know that it's actually not happening in practice. Um, then, of course, protect your password. <laughs> Come up with, the, with password, which is not necessarily the name of your cat or <laughs> uh, you know, a birth date of your mom. Um, if you can, use two-factor authentication. That's our, very important, yes. And it's quite easy to implement. And we always advise against using text message, for instance, as your second factor. So use the uh, randomly generated uh, codes uh, uh, that you can have a special app for, uh, and so on and so on. So 
um, I would really recommend to uh, our listeners to maybe visit our website where you can find these guidance uh, that will sort of give you maybe four main principles, which will, however, uh, already increase your uh, online safety mm -hmm. and the security especially. Um, and I think uh, overall, what I would definitely recommend is maybe consider other messaging apps that, mm. you know, depart from the standard ones that we all have. I can give you an example of very known signal nowadays, but this is quite an interesting aspect here, uh, which is connected to that dominance of platforms that very often users are stuck in. Uh, they are uh, they're locked in. They are locked in precisely, and they are stuck in these walled gardens, and they actually don't have alternatives, or they are not even aware of the alternatives because of these large dominant platforms that just suck you in and don't really give you the way out. Um, and that's something we are hoping Digital Services Act will tackle too. So we will have the world where you as a user can take all your data and go to smaller platforms that are maybe safer for you or more in line with your personal values and standards. And uh, that will be possible. Eliska, thank you so much for this conversation. This was Eliska Pirkova from Access Now's Brussels office. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned to Brussels Bytes. Stay tuned to the Martin Center and uh, catch you later. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here and stay safe. That was today's episode of Brussels Bytes. Oh. 